Where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion. Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Thursday, the 21st. I hope you're having a great day, making some money, excited for a safe, profitable weekend. I just hope you're in a good mood because I've got a great show for you. First up, Paul McIntosh, go to strategy. I'm sorry, go to market strategist and expert, a very impressive. I'm excited for you to meet him. And then we're going to break one of our rules and talk a little bit of politics with David Moskowitz. He has written a new book on the last election and I want to know the truth. I want to know what really happened. So we will dive in just a little bit and talk politics you know we we got to keep abreast of the issues but let's get started with the show one of the biggest parts of being an entrepreneur is your go to market strategy i'm excited to welcome an expert on that who can perhaps teach you some things teach us some things to help us get better prepared paul mcintosh is a go to market expert he has about 30 years of both Fortune 500 and startup level help at go-to-market strategy. He has worked with Cisco, the BBC, and the Lego on their startup enterprises and also with startups and us entrepreneurs. He has an agency called Bridgehead. He is the CEO there of Bridgehead Agency. Paul McIntosh, welcome. How are you today? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to meet you and great to be on. It is our pleasure. So tell us about Bridgehead and the type of work you do. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been established since 2009 and we are an international go-to-market agency and we help both startups and scale-ups in both North America expand internationally into Europe and European companies expand into North America. Um, we've helped uh, well over 80 companies now achieve close to a billion dollars in revenue in that time. Uh, so it's been an exciting, what, 15 years doing this on my own now uh, with the team here and, and helping those companies expand, whether they be consumer companies with products that, that need to go on the shelf and through retailers or whether it's B2B startups and scale-ups with SaaS or fintech or cybersecurity into their target customers. So it's a real vibrant community and, and client base we work with. That sounds like uh, everything, services, products, <laughs> web-based. Uh, if if I said, what are you the best at or what's your specialization? Uh, is there an answer to that or are you a true generalist? Well, we're, our specialization and expertise as a business is making sure that uh, in this discussion, I guess, U.S. startups and scale-ups can successfully expand no matter what industry they're in and achieve revenues as quickly as 90 days. So that's our core expertise. Uh, 
Um, there are a couple of industries we're steer clear of, but we're we're very strong in consumer packaged goods from consumer tech, health and beauty and food and beverage. But we also have a team that focuses on SaaS clients and fintech and net zero. So again, our expertise is cross-vertical, but the core focus is driving uh, revenues and growth for each of our clients. And what are the industries you stay away from? So you almost got excited when you said that. <laughs> I, I, I kind of thought as soon as I said that, you might latch on to that. So one of the industries we, we've not done any work with since 2009 is the pharma industry and pharmaceuticals. So we steer clear of that. As you can imagine, there's lots of red tape uh, running in and around that industry. Um, and, and the culture of the way that we operate here in our offices across the UK and Europe, and we're soon to reopen an office in North America in Q1, uh, we want to be able to drive rapid revenues uh, for clients and getting people into market so, so they're not waiting a long period of time for return on investment. So pharma is one of the few industries we don't operate in today. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I consider myself an international guru, I guess. And there are two or three countries that I just will not do business with. And there's some that I just Go don't on, like, but there's some more. that I just will not do business with, period. Go on, then. now you said that, Jim, who are they? <laughs> well, the UK, first of all. You will or won't do business? Will not. I'm teasing about the UK. That's a joke. <laughs> I, I did that just, I to, to, just to needle you, Paul. Um, yeah, you, you needle away. Uh, I'm not going to say that on something that's being <laughs> recorded in public. So, uh, <laughs> If you want to know and you're a listener, email me and I'll answer an email. That uh, sounds fine. We'll do that. Yeah, because I'm a... Uh, anyway. When clients come to you, Paul, is marketing their number one concern? Is that their problem or do they need to go back even further and deal with overall operational strategy? Where do you normally encounter the startup in the business cycle? Yeah, great. I mean, it's a great question and something that's much misunderstood by a lot of uh, entrepreneurs out there in their scale-ups and startup environments. And I learned this actually, Jim, very, uh, very heavily, shall I say, with the brands you mentioned. I work with at corporate. Um, it was a great experience at Lego or Legos, as you call it in the US, um, where what you found was sales went off in a left direction and marketing went off in the right direction and, and they weren't completely aligned. So I did some research into it and it was apparent even a brand at that stage, like Legos, didn't have what's called a go-to-market strategy. So the go-to-market strategy encompasses both sales and marketing. The reason we're super passionate about the go-to-market side, if you get that right and get that nailed, you can have a cohesive sales and marketing strategy. So for every buck you can spend, you get 5 or 10x return. If you don't do the go-to-market and just do marketing without sales alignment, you find gaps in the strategies. You start to enter markets, which we ensure with the partners we work with that they avoid. All right. Very diplomatic answer. And when we talk about the process, what are the steps that you do? So what's the first thing you do? And then walk us through what happens as a, a new client. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's fine. So, uh, and again, diplomacy is not something I'm very good at, so I'd rather not hear if we need to, if we need to push buttons, I'm happy to do so and disrupt the conversation. But on the, on the aspect of entering a new market, it sounds obvious, but having, having a process and methodology that we devised over, over the last 10, 15 years, and we help companies devise their own, uh, we, we essentially take each client through eight chapters and processes of work. Each chapter has five appendices. So number one could be a value proposition. So what resonates in, in the US and North America might not fit here. So you can't just cookie cut a business and bring it over and assume it fits. Even in the UK, where allegedly we speak a similar language, it might spell slightly differently between us, but we speak a similar language. So it needs to be a localized value proposition. That's super key. The competitive benchmarking and landscaping is super key to understand that and how you really pop from the competition and compare your pricing compared to the market, compared to what you do. So there's some real complexity, but we have this process and methodology we've perfected over the, the last 15 years that drives all of that data and pulls it all forward and quantifies it by numbers. So the critical thing here is when we, we're never creating 200 slides of PowerPoint and giving it to the client and telling them to, to crack on, we, we create 40 and we're doing the work ourselves and it quantifies itself by numbers and, and achieving real revenues. That's the critical component. So that's chapter eight, which is how much are they going to make and when based on which customer base. So answering those eight core chapters, Jim, is, is super essential. All right, Paul, I'm going to throw out an industry and I want you to give me your first thought in terms of go-to-market strategy for that, okay? And I know this is super generic and hard and you're going to give me a lot of <laughs> ifs, ands, and buts and, you know, two hands yeah. and the one-handed wallpaper hanger and all of those things, all the objections. It's like a quick fire game show type thing, Okay. I'll keep score as a matter of fact, and we'll see how much money you win. All right. No, oh, fantastic. No pressure. Yeah. No pressure at all. All right. So, uh, first product is an 18 year old has developed a new, uh, skincare product for people with bad cool. skin and things like that. And it's grandma's, uh, century old recipe. And she's had $50,000 in sales and go. So again, from an international aspect, you're trying to size the market. Uh, outside of the fact that we spoke about pharma earlier, health and beauty and any beauty products with a certification across market is super intense. Um, but, Within certain European regions, there's a great sense of direct-to-consumer play, and some of the routes and channels that you can play through the marketplaces in Europe are super strong for this type of product. There's 82, 83 different marketplaces that can be hit on day one to ensure that particular client gets products certified in market and products delivered in market to achieve first orders in 90 days. It's, uh, it normally takes a longer process as you're going through a buying cycle at retailers, but a direct-to-consumer play opens up at least 82-plus marketplaces from day one. So that would be the first place to go. All right. A, I have developed an uh, 
app and web-based platform that is used for global 500 businesses to uh, small team collaboration and allows small teams five or so within the global 500 organization to communicate better. And my test run, we had 20% better efficiency. Go. Wow. So this is better than Slack, right? Yes. <laughs> That'd be nice. Shouldn't be too difficult, right? Uh, so again, the, the critical aspect as you're bringing it in from any region is identifying that sweet spot within the Fortune 500s where you'll find the groups of five working. That has to be data mined and filtered right down. So what we don't want to do is 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 uh, mass market to those 500 and start driving them all crazy, but filter those 500 to the top 10% that can be targeted, can be approached by real human beings and not AI software sales tools, uh, and start to close 10% of that 10% starts to give the runway. So that's the way that we'd normally take a SaaS-based client to market. All right. Uh, You're out of ideas now, Jim, right? No, I'm trying to, a coaching <laughs> business. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, coaching business in uh, Lego using Legos as a uh, calming tool is my specialty. I've written a book on how Legos are better than most drugs at calming people. And let me digress, Paul, for just a second. Every year I try to send out business gifts to, you know, the people that I work with regularly like for example your publicist is bob uh sprule right mm -hmm. i try to give him a gift every year sometimes i get to it and sometimes i don't sometimes i have the money for it and sometimes i don't but you know if you try to give out 50 gifts it adds up pretty quickly and so i try to get something cheap that i can afford to give the best gift i've ever given the most response is a tiny little lego set that people play okay, with imagine. and it has a light up thing in it and it's yeah. a $18 Lego set. I got the yeah. best response from any gift I've ever gotten or given. So from yeah, that, that, I that developed question. my Lego coaching business. How does it go to market okay. strategy on that? Uh, and who, from a coaching business, who are you aiming the coaching business at? Executives with stress. mid-men? Upper yeah, level, the, the, upper level well, executives with stress. Uh, well, they're really kids that play anyway, right? So if you're taking the Legos brand and products to a solution from a C-suite perspective, uh, they're all big kids playing with big toys, and I think they're like nothing better than getting hands-on with Legos, right? Uh, so that's why you've got the great response, because there's nothing better than actually regressing back to childhood and starting playing and interacting, and the C-suites would love it. All right. Digital marketing agency, uh, generic Google, Facebook ad agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the differentiation there is going to be super key, right? There's got to be a magic hook that's created that's different from everybody else in market. Too many offering, too much of the same stuff. How do you stand out from the crowd? Uh, and that's going to be critically key within that area. So what we want to do is create that company. We call it in the UK a Marmite effect. That is a product. People either like it or they hate it. 
And what we don't want to do is be generic and like by everybody. So uh, a part of our strategy on there would be to make sure they've got a significant USP hook that separates or a PUSP that separates from everybody else, a perceived unique selling point. Uh, and we want to make sure that they're either liked or disliked and no shades in between. That would be the critical area of where they're looking to target and where they're looking to aim. A travel club based or directed <laughs> toward the middle class where every weekend there's a trip and everyone goes and you know they go to Vail skiing one weekend in Mexico City one weekend and to the big expo opening in Montreal one weekend and you go on the internet and there's a, a, a trip every weekend, uh, for you and your family. It's a travel club. Uh, did you say aimed at the middle ages? In middle, the middle class, age? middle class, middle class. Okay. Middle. Wow. Do you, do you have middle class in the U S <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Uh, wow. That's a that's an interesting that's an interesting one. Normally, it's the middle aged that want to go on the travel clubs and 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 thrive. So obviously, this needs to be created and curated in in such a way where it's a VIP members area and an aspirational membership club that people want to join in order to to meet in and around the trips. The trips themselves would normally the venues are one aspect, but the personnel that attend it. Uh, would create a point of difference. So move it into a middle-class area, that's fine. Create a VIP solution around the middle-class audience so they have to subscribe. Those people that pay always contribute extra, and then your bookings are higher once you start to become a, a perceived VI member within that community and, and organization. That's the way I'd position it over here. The business actually existed back in the 1970s in Atlanta, it was called the Skylarks and they were incredibly popular. You would show up wow. at the airport and you would go to the cargo, not to the normal passenger area. They had a valet, take your car and grab your luggage out of the trunk. And then you walked into the cargo hangar and the airplane was inside the hangar and they had a buffet set up at the bottom of the airplane. And you could get your food and go up on the plane and put your stuff on the plane and wander around and go to the cockpit and see who was you know, going with you that weekend and everything. And then they'd say, okay, five minutes, everyone on the plane. Then the, you know, the plane would roll out of the hangar and you would take off and go to uh, Greece or wherever. Or they had short trips and long trips or you know Las Vegas for the yeah. weekend. And then you would get, they'd have a bus pick you up. You would go to the hotel, the bag, your bag would already be in your hotel room. They'd have a cocktail party that night and then turn you loose and then send you home. It was amazing. We used to go all the time, went snowmobiling with my dad every year. And then one year they wrecked the plane and killed everybody. <laughs> uh, it wasn't necessarily a happy ending that you were. No, you that's were not the ending you expected, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that keeps you lively in the UK on a on a Monday afternoon. Yes, but that's truly, honestly, what happened. Wow. Um, anyway, well, there you go. So a VIP service with concierge aspects wrapped around. So hopefully, you've scored me fairly well on that. Yes, it was a great business, and your answer was fantastic as well. All right, one more bar. <laughs> a a bar. Bar, restaurant bar. 
Yeah. And what's it offering? Uh, you tell me. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm, I'm creating the, the, the service and, and product from scratch, am I? I've hired, I've uh, signed a lease on the, the 5,000 square feet uh, right off of uh, Piccadilly. Oh, dear me. You haven't got some budget. You've got some money to spend, that's for sure. Uh, mm, yeah, best, uh, best be cautious and careful on this one. So in and around that neck of the woods, there used to be uh, uh, Piccadilly's crying out for, for a really decent interactive e-gaming sports bar. There used to be a sports bar down the road that did super, super well pre-COVID. So Piccadilly, within that space, is thriving for a VIP top route, top shelf at the, the top of the building in Piccadilly interactive gaming and e-gaming environment downstairs to take your middle-class traveling VIP concierge community into the restaurant within that, within that environment. All right. Reverse it. Now I have $25,000 budget. I've just got a uh, thousand square feet in a strip shopping center in the middle of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, with the with the second restaurant, yes. Wow! Now you're challenging me on Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? As to what's going to go down well there. So, hey, look, if if we're going UK out, uh, we we this, this is something hopefully your listeners would ever have heard of. But look, I am sure a pie and mash shop would be really well received in Oklahoma, and if we able to position it down in that in that part of the world, that would be fantastic. That would actually make my day. That's a that's a London speciality for for people uh, that, that are brought up in the, in that part of the world. I could not agree more. We have a spot right around the corner from us, and they just opened up a inked i n k e d taco and hot chicken restaurant. And I kept I, it's the dumbest idea ever. First of all, wow. a taco that is inked, I-N-K-E-D. I don't understand what that means, but it sounds gross. We need no. a hamburger restaurant, for God's sake. No. We need a no, hamburger, maybe like hamburger, pizza, and chicken fingers. And call it <laughs> H-P-C. You know, that's you have three there, things, hamburgers, pizzas, and chicken fingers. Nothing else. There you go. There's, there's a combo. Honestly, stick with a pie and mash. And have lots of Dick Van Dyke sound alike selling it over the counter, then there'll be queues around the corner. Paul, how do we find out more? Follow you online and go to market with you. Yeah, great, uh, great to talk, and and thanks for for, for challenging me on all those all those very interesting questions. So, uh, yeah, if people want to want to see more about the team and hear more about how we've helped companies, then uh, we're at. Uh, bridgeheadagency.com from a website perspective uh, you can also follow us on, on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook as Bridgehead Agency Fantastic. Paul, thank you so very much for playing you were absolutely fantastic I have our team calculating your score right now for the game let's see how you did we're having to calculate your score I'm so sorry, Paul. You got a perfect score, but I still win all of the money. <laughs> all right, goes to that saying. You can buy me a beer with a moment. There we go. Bridgeheadagency.com, and we will be right back.
Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back, and again, thank you so very much for being with us. Well, I'm very excited and a little bit nervous to introduce my next guest. Please welcome David Moskowitz to the show. He is a four-decade-long attorney in the Pennsylvania area. He has also been the CEO of a pharmaceutical company and has had experience in some other industries as well, including real estate. But he has just released a new book. It's his third This is called The Judge and the President Stealing the 2020 Election. David, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jim. It is my pleasure. Well, normally we don't talk politics on this show. We kind of avoid it because people like to get mad about it. But we're going to make an exception because I think this is so important. We need to know about it. Uh, your book is sort of like an insider's account. Your wife is one of the electors in Pennsylvania. Tell us your story and why'd you write this book? Well, you mentioned my wife. Uh, She was asked to be an elector in the 2020 election, uh, which she agreed to do. And so she was one of the 306 People who voted for Biden to be the president in the 2020 election, it was an unusual uh, election because of the actual threat that there would be an effort to disrupt the counting of the electoral college votes, or I guess more accurately, the casting of the electoral college votes. So she received a letter directing her to go to a parking garage. It did not disclose the name of the location where the electors would meet. They were obviously in the state capital, Harrisburg, which is a requirement of the system that you meet in the state capitol in the individual states uh, where the electors are going to gather. And she went to the disclosed location. They did not uh, tell her even then where they were going, but they picked up the electors at the parking garage, took them to the location where they were going to meet in order to cast the votes. Uh, There was no uh, physical threat in Pennsylvania. There was an effort to get into the Capitol in uh, Michigan, which the police stopped the alternate electors from, from actually entering the Capitol. In Georgia, they, the alternate electors, I use that term to mean the electors who who weren't the electors of choice of the candidate who won the election in that state. 
uh, in Georgia, they actually met in the Capitol at, a, at an unannounced meeting. So um, I, I thought having the insight into how this uh, contest was going to uh, unfold uh, gave me an opportunity to write a book about it and about uh, some other issues because uh, this book, The Judge and the President, is the third book in a series of four books. And does that answer your question, or yes? Well, you want what did you find? Me to keep going. Well, I'll I'll interject. <laughs> and what did you discover through writing the book? Was your uh, did you have a thesis that you wanted to test to see if they really did break the law or not? Let me give a little background, David, and so you can uh, respond to this. First, I and I believe most of America believes what I believe, right? Because everyone thinks that, that they're normal and they <laughs> think that whatever they believe is normal. But I believe most America's Americans are as frustrated as I am. And I think that we believe pretty much the worst of every politician. I believe every allegation that I hear. I believe Trump did everything that he's been accused of. But I also 100% believe that Biden has done everything that he has been accused of. I think they all deserve to be in jail. Every single one of them. If they got elected, somehow they did something dirty to get there. You know, I just, I'm so cynical about them. And I'm just repulsed by the actions of both sides. Um, so there's where well, I am. And the, also, let me say this too. Let me keep going a little bit more. I believe that uh, Dershowitz is one of the greatest legal minds of our time. We've been told that right by his bio. It says so right there in the very first line. And I saw him and he said that when he was part of the Gore-Lieberman recount effort in Florida 20 years ago, that they did not everything, but most of what Trump has been accused of. And he said that's just normal politics stuff. You sit around and talk dirty about the other guy. And that's not Rico. Rico is when you actually, okay, we're going to go break all their knuckles and then throw them in cement bags and sink them in the lake. You know, that's different from, wow, we should go and stuff a ballot box with some fake ballots. You know, I mean, that's something that every election ever, in my opinion, has said, including Abraham Lincoln's. So there's a little background for where I think, David, what are your thoughts in response to all of my blabber? Uh, well, my my wife is not a professional politician. You'll be happy to hear well, I'm not that she's really that, 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 well, no, that, that she's really an entrepreneur, and uh, uh, her whole career was one of running and managing businesses that she owned or owned with partners. And uh, working, or not maybe working is not the right word, participating in uh, various nonprofits. So, uh, having done that for 30, 40, uh, she decided she didn't want to do that. She agreed, this is in 2013, to run for the state legislature. She didn't win the election, and so uh, I thought that was the end of her 
experience in politics. However, in 2019, she decided uh, to run for county commissioner in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Uh, Chester County is a very wealthy county, I think 14th in the country, and a beautiful uh, county with a lot of uh, agriculture and some industry, a great place to live. And so she ran in 2019, and when she won, uh, she also brought in the whole slate. That, that ended up in 2020, where she became county chair, lady of the Chester County Commissioners, and was the first Democrat in the almost 250 years of Chester County having commissioners. She was the first Democrat to ever be the county chair person. And as far as I know, the first business man or woman who ever became a county commissioner. So uh, that started her, her political career, because I guess you can't be a governmental official without being something of a politician. But she's run, uh, managed the county uh, more or less in the same way she managed, managed her businesses by I love that sol solving the problems, watching how the money was spent, uh, trying to keep the workers happy and productive. And uh, she was very successful at it. Uh, uh, she put in a whole new budgetary procedure. I believe it's fair to say she changed the culture in the county in terms of how it should be managed. And in fact, um, she's had crisis after crisis in fulfilling her role as county commissioner. As she was, she was sworn in in early January 2020. And within three or four weeks of being sworn in, uh, her health department told her there was going to be a pandemic and she closed the county down, uh, first one in the state to do so. And at the end of the day, at the end of the crisis, Chester County had the lowest per capita incidence of uh, COVID diseases in the state. So taking that business approach including having to import uh, masks and so forth from China and having to get that uh, through into the U.S. without the U.S. government seizing them and getting it at the right price and in the right quantity was a good trick. And the reason she was able to do it is that she's done business in China. And so she knew how to play the game there. So from your entrepreneurial interest, uh, she's a classic entrepreneur fulfilling a governmental role. That's the way it should be. Uh, I love that example. Yeah. Is that I, I, I don't, in the book, though? Let's get back to the book, David. No, no, no. In, in the book, it, it, uh, the, the series of four books... I've written a really a legal, political, philosophical set of books. Um, 
the the first uh, book is called The Judge and the Umpire, and that uh, got its impetus from Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh at his senatorial confirmation hearing when asked uh, what his philosophy of being a judge is, and he was a judge at the time, wanting to, to get the promotion to the Supreme Court, he answered that a judge is like an umpire. All we do is call balls and strikes. I thought that was a bunch of BS, that he didn't really believe that. It was nonsense. And, and um, I thought somebody should write a book about it. And since uh, I didn't see anybody doing it, I did it. And I, I tried to explain in the first book that judges not only uh, make decisions by applying existing rules of law, but unlike umpires, judges have the legal authority to create new legal rules. And in doing so, they're not applying the existing rules. And I set up a format for creating new legal rules. Uh, the second book, uh, The Judge and the Philosopher, it, it expands upon the first book in terms of the discretion that judges have to create new legal rules. Uh, but then it, it occurred to me that really the law is much more complex than I had presented in the first two books. So I wanted to write a book about the complexity uh, of the law and the presidential election system seemed to be a good place to begin because the presidential election procedure is really a melding of three different legal systems. There are federal laws, including the Constitution. There are state laws. As you mentioned, Bush versus Gore, and that was really a question of, of state law in terms of how you would count the votes and the hanging chads and all of that. And it was unusual that the Supreme Court would even get involved in uh, reversing the Florida Supreme Court, which had made a decision about the Florida law. It'd be unusual for the Supreme Court to instruct the state Supreme Court about its own law. But that's what happened at Bush versus Gore. And in addition to the federal law and the state law, the election law for the president is really one third local law. Uh, because, for example, it is the local board of elections, the Chester County Board of Elections of which my wife is also the chair, uh, that decides how many drop-in boxes there will be, how they're going to do the mail-in ballots, whether an incorrect mail-in ballot, which is like a technical uh, failure, such as not to put the date on the inside envelope, whether you're going to count that ballot, uh, whether you're going to give people who sent that kind of ballot in the opportunity to correct it so it'll be counted. Um, how many polling places will you have? 
how will they be manned? Like, will you, are you going to have security cameras at the polling places and so forth? So all of these are local decisions made at the county level. And then in addition, there are the state statutes. So in Pennsylvania, the state statute does not stipulate that the named elector, that is the 20 named electors in Pennsylvania, we have 20 electoral votes, there is no, st no state statute, and this is fairly common, there is, no, there is no state statute that compels, requires, demands that the elector vote in the same way that the popular vote in the state came out. And in fact, in the 2016 presidential election, there were seven, they're called faithless electors, seven electors of the total of 538 who did not vote for the candidate who won the popular vote in their state. And I think a lot of people don't understand that when they go to vote for the president, for example, in 2020, they thought they were voting for either Trump or Biden, but in many cases, they really weren't. They were voting instead for 20 electors, either the 20 electors that Biden's campaign submitted as the names of the electors, or the 20 electors that Trump's campaign submitted. And so when they voted, and my wife's name wasn't on the ballot, they were really voting for her to be an elector. And she, like the other 19 members of the Pennsylvania delegation, she could have voted for uh, the, uh, somebody in, Wa in Washington voted for an Indian chief. Uh, one voted uh, f uh, for uh, Colin Powell, who wasn't on the ballot and so forth. Uh, so this, th this uh, complex system that we have is so confusing, and the average voter doesn't understand how it works, that I try to explain in this book, The Judge and the President, how the election system works. And, and, and I think we really, before we lose this democracy, we have to upgrade the system and, and uh, repurpose it to have a system in which when the people vote for the president, uh, that they the the one who wins the votes <laughs> gets to be the president. I mean, in in uh, 2020, uh, Gore won the popular national. I'm uh, not in 2020. I mean, in in, in the Bush Gore election, two thousand in twenty in two thousand. Uh, yeah, yeah, twenty. Uh, not not in twenty twenty. Oh, uh, sorry, two thousand. Yeah, two thousand. Uh, Gore won the popular uh, vote, um, and in 2016, Trump did not win the popular vote. Uh, and and uh, I don't think people understand how the system works, 
and how what a risk it is to not have the legal system uh, portray how the actual system uh, works. And then, of course, in 2020, we ended up with a candidate in Trump who didn't concede that he lost and to this day hasn't conceded that he lost. And there is nothing in the in the written constitution uh, that says uh, there will be a peaceful transfer of power after the election. <laughs> and the one who wins the election will get to be the president. Uh, so, so there's a big risk to the democracy. And that was evident in the January 6th effort to stop the counting of the votes. Just imagine what, where we'd be if Pence had gone along with the pressure on him to throw the election to Trump. Uh, there might have been a civil war or something even worse than what happened to January 6th, which was bad enough in itself. Uh, so the, the, in this book, I get into the the trials that are now the ongoing trials, especially the one in Georgia and, what are your and the one on and that? the one in in hey, Washington. What do you see happening there? Uh, I I think uh, that the Washington trial. Uh, will result in uh, Trump being convicted. However, the caveat to that is, I don't think that it'll reach a final conclusion before the election in 2024 or before the inauguration of the president in, in early January. Uh, and... I believe that that case will still be on appeal and that there's a, a memorandum at the Department of Justice that they've been honoring, which takes the position that you can't proceed with a trial against a sitting president. So I think ultimately... That case in Washington, D.C. is going to be put on hold. Uh, therefore, I believe that the Georgia case is significantly more important because there's nothing that would cause a, a hiatus or a continuation. I mean, a, 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 a failure to continue of the Georgia trial. And I believe the Georgia trial will come to a conclusion uh, before the election in 2024. And I think Trump will also lose the, the Georgia trial. And as a result of uh, that loss, uh, we may have a situation that, that the legal system doesn't have clear rules about. Can can a person be a president while sitting in prison? I mean, that's an exaggeration because I don't think Trump's ever going to go to prison. 
but I believe he will end up being convicted and sentenced to house arrest. Um, and ultimately, I think a deal will be made where he will uh, not be a candidate for president uh, and will agree uh, in some kind of settlement. Uh, we'll get it resolved. I have to think that happens too. And I could see that happening on both sides. I could see Biden also stepping aside uh, and saying, let's just forget about everything. And both of us will go away because you know what? The country would stand up and cheer if that happened. You know, no, no one wants both of these guys again to run against each other. Just no one does. So, well, I, I don't know that, that I necessarily agree with that because I don't think Biden's done anything that would count as a crime. Did he take uh, however, money? Dave? Uh, however, that, Dave, that, that's did he take a whole. Money? Not that I know of. I've never seen any any proof of that. Obvious uh, that he did. Obviously, he did. Of course, he did. So. That's well, where I started off. Well, well I, I, uh, okay. I, I, I don't discuss that issue <laughs> yep. in the book, but I, but I do discuss uh, how a RICO trial works. And I think that's really uh, the, the, uh, the society is going to get an interesting lesson watching this trial in Georgia unfold. Tell us First why of we all, need, only have about a minute left, Dave. How does, the, how does it work? What's interesting about the RICO trial? A, a RICO trial it, it, it is like you're, it's Saturday morning and you're going to the neighborhood basketball uh, court and you're wondering on your way over who's on my team, who's going to show up. Uh, and you get there and uh, teams are selected. You play a game and the next game, who was on your team? The first game, maybe on the other team, the next game. And, and a RICO trial is like that. You won't know what the position of these other defendants is until the trial actually gets going. And some of them will change the team they're on during the trial. And they will end up pleading guilty and testifying against uh, Trump. And that's why I think Trump will be... Uh, convicted in this trial oh, there's no and unlike doubt. the federal trial it'll come to a conclusion in other words there'll be a final supreme court of georgia decision i don't think the u.s supreme court will hear the case and and so that'll be the outcome where the federal trial the one in washington dc i think will still be pending uh, in early 2025 I agree with you about Georgia, and I don't know if you've heard this, Dave, but the same district attorney used RICO again and has uh, indicted, I don't remember how many, maybe 30 individuals who burnt down a new police facility that's under construction. It's a training facility, and they occupied the, the lot to stop construction, and what is for decades been an environmental protest is now being considered RICO in Georgia. So she's brought RICO charges against these environmental protesters. And so well, well, Georgia has a RICO statute, just like the federal RICO statute. In fact, it's a stronger RICO statute 
than the federal one. It covers more potential crimes. And, and that's Georgia is not the only state that has its own RICO statute. Dave, how do we find so, out more? Follow online, get a copy of the book. Yeah, read the book. It's available on uh, Kindle, softback or hardback. Uh, you can get it from Amazon, and hopefully it'll be in uh, local uh, bookstores. Uh, and I think that people will find it uh, interesting and will learn some things that they hadn't considered uh, before reading the book. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. And I can't wait to see how it plays out and who our next president is. So who do you think wins? Who gets inaugurated January 25? Uh, hopefully it's someone who's qualified to be president. No, uh, that's there's zero chance of that. Who is it, Dave? Give me a name. Is it Harris, Biden, Trump? Scott? No, I, I, I don't think it'll be any of those names. It'll be uh, someone who's not front and center uh, at the present time. I'm predicting either Gavin Newsom or Nikki Haley. That's my predictions. Well, okay. I'm I, I, In this book, I do not predict who the president will be. Well, However, hopefully, hopefully, I I uh, present a framework by which we can improve the system by which the president is elected. Oh God, we need to do that. But we're out of time, so we have to go. Thanks for being with us today. Take care, everyone. Go make a million dollars. Bye now. Have a great day.